Hi everybody, just wanted to say before we start playing this interview that I found this interview to be really outstanding. It was a remarkable interview um, and it changed a lot of my perspectives on experiencing Judaism and practicing Judaism and so many concepts that I think religious, non-religious, Jew or non-Jew, uh, a lot of paradigms were shifted through this interview and I think it's incredibly worthwhile, even though it's quite a long interview, I think you'll find it very, very worthwhile to give this a watch. So I encourage you to check it out and just wanted to say from the offset that this is definitely one of my favorite JTV interviews so far. So enjoy. Hello everybody and welcome to JTV. Today we're joined by an extremely special guest. Uh, I would say this is probably one of the most popular uh, Jewish spiritual commentators and advisors online today at the moment. Uh, I'd even say even among no, uh, non-Jewish people as well, he's extremely popular, uh, has had a lot of viral videos. And the reason why I'm so excited to have him on JTV is because Rabbi Manis Friedman, who is our guest today, is someone who I feel frames Jewish matters, Jewish values, and spiritual concepts in a way that I feel is so positive, um, healthy, constructive, and I would say he is someone who I feel embodies the verse uh, that is said in Proverbs uh, that, that talks about the ways of the Torah and the ways of Judaism. And it says, we actually say it as we put the Torah away in the Ark on Shabbat mornings, we say, uh, that the Torah's ways are ways of pleasantness and all its paths our peace. And that's what I think of when I listen to Rabbi Friedman. So Rabbi, thank you, first of all, so much for joining us here on JTV today. It is always a pleasure to share good, pleasant, what else, what else what other word did you use? <laughs> Constructive, healthy, balanced. Peaceful. Yes, that is so important. It is so essential to the message. Like Rabbi Akiva said, Every word in Torah is about love of a fellow Jew. And if you don't see that, then you're not reading the text correctly. Wow, absolutely. Um, so you guys see why I've got, this, got, got him on now. Um, so I want to start by talking about something which is actually quite close to home for me. Um, I grew up uh, sort of in a traditional Jewish household and I became uh, more observant and engaged in my Jewish observance throughout my teen years. I decided in my last year of high school that I wanted to go to yeshiva, even though I had really no idea what that meant. And I came across, whether it's through my own uh, Jewish studies, listening to certain uh, sort of extravagant uh, Jewish uh, you know, speakers or rabbis, um, where you might sometimes hear quite a lot of emphasis among some people and, or some, some Jewish texts even, on the concept of God as a divine punisher. And that when bad things happen, one is meant to examine their actions and, and, and think, you know, maybe I need to reconsider my ways or, 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 or repent or whatever it is. But I found myself getting into a bit of a dangerous rabbit hole where as certain challenges crept up in my life, as they inevitably will with anyone, I got to a point where I was kind of just my assumption was this is all punishment and I need to 
you know, but I couldn't even figure out what it is that I need to change and I'm trying my best. And so I ended up getting into this place of just burnout where I'm feeling I'm trying my best. I'm interpreting things that happen to me as, you know, punishment. I'm saying even to the point where like, if let's say I forgot to say this prayer or that prayer, then if, you know, I got a flat tire, I might think, oh, maybe that's because I didn't do that. And I start, people start creating all these uh, conceptions in, in their heads. And that's what I found happening to me. And I realized that this is, this is just really unhealthy and like on, on all kinds of levels. And it made me re-examine how I'm interpreting God, how I'm understanding this concept of, you know, divine uh, reward and punishment and all that. And um, I, I, that's sort of where I want to start. And I'm happy to share with you more of how, of my, how my journey kind of pr progressed and how I learned it's not necessarily right to approach anything that happens to you in that way. Um, but what, what, what do you think is the right perspective on this? Because I really think a lot of uh, people growing religiously can fall down the same kind of path, go down the same kind of path that I went down. And, and how do you reconcile that with the fact that we're supposed to assume and believe that gamzul Toiva, everything that's happening is for the good, and no bad comes from above. Isn't that a great contradiction? Well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you how I recon how I reconciled it, because I'll, I'll tell you the, the 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 few things that I was hearing. Number one, I was hearing that you know we say in the Musaf Amida uh, on the festivals, because of our sins we are exiled from our land. I was hearing on Rosh Hashanah. Teshuva, tefillah, tzedakah, your actions will change what, what Hashem does with you. Um, I was hearing in the Talmud, it says, if something bad comes your way, examine your actions. That's what I was hearing. And so I felt maybe there is something to this. And what do we do with the fact that no bad comes from Hashem and Hashem is all the essence of goodness and, and everything is for the good? So let's, let's first take a look at the whole concept of reward and punishment. It's a big subject, right? It's one of the 13 principles of faith, that for every mitzvah there's a reward and for every sin there's a punishment. And then we look in Pirkei Avos and we are told, do not serve your master like a servant who serves for sake of a reward, serve like the servant who serves, who serves without sake of reward. So you keep telling me what the reward is and I'm supposed to keep ignoring it. So if I'm not doing it for the reward and I shouldn't do it for the reward, that makes a lot of sense that doing it for the reward is actually worshiping the reward and not God himself. Shouldn't that apply to not suffering punishment? Is that not a reward? Is that not one of the benefits? So if I do my mitzvahs and I'm very careful not to sin because I don't want to suffer, who am I serving? Myself, right? It's self-serving. So where is Ivdu es Hashem? And I ask this question to yeshiva people, to rush yeshivas, to teachers, to rabbis. Where is the ivdu es Hashem if every mitzvah is to my benefit and avoidance of sin is 
to keep me protected and, and, and safe. Where is the Ivdu Hashem? And they don't know. Can you just translate Ivdu Hashem for our viewers? Because some might not be familiar. You mean serving God? Serve God with joy. That's the essence of, of all the mitzvahs. And yet if I'm doing it because it's best for me and God is just giving me good advice and I'm accepting the good advice, does that mean I'm serving him? He's serving me, guiding me, protecting me, giving me wisdom. But it's all about me. This can't be. This cannot be. And even the emphasis on suffering in the, in the hereafter, suffering after 120 years, is that not a little narcissistic? And what exactly is the suffering in the, in, in the world to come? Why would it be narcissistic? I'm just protecting myself. I'm, it's like a good insurance policy. I want to make sure that after I pass away, things go smoothly. It's an insurance policy. So in what way am I serving God? Well, let's ask the question a little differently. What does it even mean to serve God? To serve him means to do something for him. <laughs> what could I do for him? He needs nothing. He is perfect. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is all-knowing and almighty. <laughs> what am I going to do for him? Buy him another tie? <laughs> you know, where do you get the guy who's got everything? <laughs> so the whole notion of serving God seems impossible to begin with. Which may lead many people to the conclusion that it must be for my benefit. He can't do anything for him. And yet, serve God with joy is such a central principle in, in the entire Torah. You, co you quoted about, we were exiled because of our sins. But there's also a quote that says, there's going to be an exile, and the reason will be because you didn't serve God with joy. But what does it mean to serve him? So we're making some very fundamental mistakes. And they're terrible. They're terrible. Like speaking of God's perfection. The more we speak of how perfect he is, the less lovable he is. The less approachable he is the more impossible it becomes to serve him. So is God affected in any way by what I do or don't do? The conventional wisdom is not affected at all. So it must be for my benefit. So I'm really just serving myself and I'm really grateful that 3,333 years ago, God gave us the Torah, which tells us how to do what's best for ourselves. 
But since then, we really have no relationship with him. And yet every day, twice a day, three times a day, we quote from the Torah, you should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He's not lovable. He's not approachable. He's not reachable. <laughs> so this is an impossible situation. So I have an interesting little incident. I got a phone call from a guy from Israel. I don't know him, he doesn't know me. He was desperate. His 12 year old daughter had gotten it into her head that God was angry at her and she's miserable. They tried everything and no one could help. Everyone was trying to convince her that God was not angry with her, but she wouldn't budge. So without warning, he puts her on the telephone and says, here, talk to her. So having no choice, I said to her, God is angry at you? She says, yes. I said, I'm so jealous. <laughs> she says, why? I said, because you're 12 years old and you can do something to get God angry? How did you become so important? <laughs> the problem was over. If, if God is angry at us, is that not the biggest compliment in the world? We can affect him. He who needs nothing, who is perfect and infinite and, and eternal. There's something I can do that can affect him and get him angry? Then obviously this is not all for my benefit. If it's for my benefit and I don't do it, he should just have pity on me, not get angry. So the very notion that God gets angry with us is such a compliment to us and it changes our entire view and understanding of him. Wow. So he, he gets angry when we sin, but he gets no pleasure when we do a mitzvah. He's, he's unreachable. Well, I can get him angry. Yeah, anger, but that's about it. He's just one angry guy. That's terrible. So let's, let's try this and get right to the punchline. We've been laboring under a misconception, a terrible misconception that goes against the grain of every word in Torah. You ready for this one? Since the beginning of creation, we have been told that we, the created beings, even God's chosen people, the apple of his eye, we are so needy. We are so weak, we are so vulnerable, we are so dependent. We must pray every day just for the privilege of living. We need his kindness and his compassion because we can't, we can't do anything without him. 
On and on, we are told this in a thousand different ways. And then, like you say, if something goes wrong that I don't like, well, now I'm being punished. I'm not good enough to get a favor from him. So now I have to get down on my knees, in a manner of speaking, and beg and plead and promise to be good and do a thorough tshuva, then maybe he'll like me a little bit and do me a favor and help me with my needy weaknesses. What a depressing picture. <laughs> it's horrible. It is horrible. And then we're supposed to love him? Look, he did this to us, right? He put us in this condition. And then says, watch your step. You do something wrong, you're going to suffer. And then we're told to love him with all your heart. That's like being told to love your abuser. Absolutely. I, I, just to pause you for one second, just to express how I feel this, this is, is somewhat right, widespread in all religious communities, not just Jewish, but all. I, I once, you know, when I was going through this challenge that I referenced earlier, you know, just in my post-Yeshiva days, I remember there was a middle-tier religious figure um, who said to me, you know, Ollie, if you just, um, you know, examine your actions a bit more, maybe try a bit more, then maybe, maybe you'll, you'll get the Yeshua that you, that you need, the, 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 the healing or change, whatever it is that you need. And to me, I, it was utterly depressing to hear that and, and, and demotivating. It's sort of vic like victim blaming almost. Then on the other hand, there's another terrible problem with it because it makes it sound like my needs are, are sacred. You have to get what you need. You must find a way to get what you need. So beg, plead, promise, do anything you can. You must fulfill your needs. And that occupies my mind day and night. There's no room for God. My needs are paramount. And he's only here to fulfill my needs. I just got to push the right button to get the right response. It is such a depressing, negative picture and so not Jewish. Transactional. It's so Catholic. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the Catholic idea, uh, God loves you so much that he sacrificed his son to gain forgiveness for you so that you can get to heaven. You know, I got a better idea. Don't create me and don't kill your son. What kind of sick plan is this? You create me in sin so that I can't get to heaven, so that your son has to die for me to get to heaven. Don't create me. Don't take me to heaven. What is all this? What makes this whole thing necessary? Nothing. It's a ridiculous plan. So look, look at what is really true. Bereshis bara elikim es In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. I know enough. 
that will keep me going for the rest of my life. The rest is commentary. <laughs> Those are such enlightening words. In the beginning, in other words, before there was me with my problems, God created the world. You know, God, you know, infinite, eternal, all-powerful, almighty. He created the world. The obvious question is, for what? He is already perfect. He is God. Can't get better than that. So why did he create a world? So the rabbis come along and they say, well, he didn't need to. He didn't need to. I'm not interested. God creates an entire universe that he does not need. I quit right there. You're already sounding senseless. So then I say, what, he created the world without a purpose? He said, oh no, of course he's got a purpose. Oh, he has a purpose, but no need. Now he has a purpose that he doesn't need. <laughs> You're making him sound so ridiculous. It's, it's a shul Hashem, it's, it's blasphemous. So right there in the first words of the Torah, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. It tells me two of the most important things anyone ever needs to know. Number one, he created. Don't tell me he doesn't need anything. And number two, it was in the beginning, before there was me, before I needed anything. So it's not about me. Now take a look at reality and see how much, how much more beautiful and meaningful it's become. Only a creator has needs. Only a creator. The created being has no needs. Where do I get needs from? I was created the way he needs me to be, in his image. But I have needs and he doesn't. No. He has a divine need. I am created in his image, so I have things that look like needs. <laughs> which are not mine. I have no needs. Thank you very much. And I think we've come to this realization universally. Late in history, like in the last year or so, where all over the world suddenly people are saying, I didn't ask to be born. And they're not depressed or suicidal. <laughs> they're just making an observation. I didn't ask to be born. Did you? Even children are saying it. Ten-year-olds. Put your, put your things away in the shelf. Why do I have to? I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> and the parents panic and take them to a, to a psychiatrist and put them on on antidepressants. No, don't do that. 
just tell your 10 year old that you didn't ask to be born either. <laughs> I actually saw a funny video last week where someone said, par parents say to me like, you know, we fed you, we gave you a shelter under, you know, for you, a roof under you, for you to live under. He said, isn't that your job? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Like, you chose to have me. <laughs> so a guy in India last year took his parents to court, literally took them to court, suing them to pay all his bills for the rest of his life because he gave birth, they gave birth to him without his consent. Are you serious? Yep. <laughs> Unfortunately for him, both his parents are lawyers. <laughs> he lost, they threw it out of court. But when you think about it, he's got a very good point. I never signed any agreements how did I become responsible to pay bills? No, not just pay bills. I got to get up early in the morning to go to school and I have to get good grades and I got to get into a good college and I got to get a good job and I got to make a lot of money so that I can pay for my house and my trips and my, and my kids' tuitions. I have to do that? And nobody even asked me and I never agreed to any of this? That's nasty. It's like, it's like you take me to a very expensive restaurant and give me the best things in the restaurant and then tell me to pay for it. I'm not paying for it. And the same is true with God. God puts me in this world without asking me. I never agreed to it. And now God says, you better watch it. You got to earn your way into heaven. So wait a minute. I don't need this. No, no, you need to keep kosher and you need to be good and you need to give charity and you need to. No, no, I don't need anything because I didn't need to be born. That is such a fundamental basic truth. I don't need to be here. And I don't see what I gain by being here. At best, I will go back to where I came from. What's the deal? I don't need anything. The, the need that has driven people since the beginning of history was the need to not die. Well, guess what? It's not working anymore. You can't threaten people anymore like that, especially young people. Now they're telling people, don't do drugs. It can kill you. And every teenager is like waiting for the punchline. Yeah, so what's your point? The threat doesn't work anymore. And it shouldn't because it makes absolutely no sense to live the best life I can live so that I don't die. And why do you think we, people have come to that, these, these feelings now in history? Is it to do with, we have physical abundance, so there's nothing for us to be focusing on as much perhaps, or I, I don't know, I'm just speculating. I think very simply, 
death is not so imminent as it used to be. Every farmer's kid knows if the rains don't come, we're going to starve. It's very simple. If we don't get the seeds in on time, there will be no crop and we will die. Tell a kid today, if you don't go to school, you're going to die. <laughs> what? <laughs> so it, it lost its power. But also, it's probably a step before the coming of Mashiach. There's got to be a major shift in, in, in people's mentality, in the psyches, to enter into a Mashiachic world rather than the exile world that we've been that we've been used to. So here's the picture. I am not needy. I don't need to eat. I have to because I was created that way. It was not my idea. I don't like it. I don't need it. I don't want it. But I have no choice. I tried going without food. Lasted about two hours. <laughs> Try going without sleep. I don't need to sleep. It's such a waste of time. But I can't. Who did this to me? My creator. So they're not my needs. They're imposed on me. So precisely, correctly stated, it's his need that I eat. It's his need that I sleep. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. On the other hand, he created the entire world because he needs me. Put those two things together and you have Judaism. That's the entire Torah. God gathers, at, at, gathers us at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, and he says, can I tell you what I need? That's the Torah. I need you to honor your father and mother. I need you to, to not work on Shabbos. I need you to not kill or steal or commit adultery. This is me. This is my need. So on the one hand, I am no longer needy. On the other hand, I am essential. I am needed. That's it. That's it. The rest is commentary. I think also today, our neediness has gone way too far. It is such a heavy burden and it is so depressing. Our needs, they're just endless. Just when you think you have everything you need, a new product comes on the market, which you must have. <laughs> it's to die for. And other such pretty expressions. <laughs> So psychology that was supposed to give us some relief only adds to our burden. You come to the psychiatrist or psychologist and you say, I can't take this anymore. The needs, they just don't end. 
I can never relax. I can't stop. I can't. I can't. And what does the, psycho the psychologist do? Say, no, no, no. You think you know what you need, but what you really need is your mother's approval because she never wanted you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> You're so helpful. Also, you're jealous of your brother, and uh, you were traumatized as a kid. So you need to heal and you need therapy for the next 10 years. No, no. I'm looking to unburden. Don't burden me more. So then I run to religion. I say, come on, God is going to help me. God will take care of my needs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you go to religion and you discover that your needs will not end when you die. <laughs> They're going to follow you into heaven and plague you there. So is there no help? Is there no escape? Once you hear this, it is so intuitively true. I don't have needs because I don't need to be here at all. Then why am I here? Because I am needed, not needy. Idolatry doesn't mean bow down to a statue you just finished making out of stone or wood. That's absurd. Idolatry means only a creator has a need. When you start claiming that you have needs, that's idolatry. You're not God, knock it off. You are not entitled to needs. Only a creator has needs. Let me give you a, little, a quick little incident. This boy from New York goes off to France to yeshiva. He arrives. He goes straight to the office and he says to the dean of the yeshiva, I need to call my mother. Which phone can I use? This was back before everybody had their own phone. And the dean of the yeshiva, to his utter surprise, mimics him and says, I need to call my mother. The boy was very surprised. The dean of the yeshiva was known to be a very deep, profound, pious individual. So he says, yes, I, I need to call my mother. And the dean says again, I need to call my mother. So thinking quickly, to the boy's credit, he realized what the dean was saying. So he says, no, no, no. My mother needs me to call her. Which phone can I use? And the dean said, good. That was your first lesson. You need to call your mother? First of all, that isn't even true. No teenage boy needs to call his mother, <laughs> unless he's run out of money. <laughs> Secondly, you need to call your so go find a phone. Nobody, nobody is obligated to do your work for you. Your mother needs you to call, and you're gonna call. Okay, that that's 
first of all, true. Your mother is sitting at the phone waiting for it to ring. And secondly, that's nice. That's noble. Yes, I'll help you. Here's a phone. Same is true with God and Judaism. The religious father says to his son, wake up, you have to go to shul. Kid says, I have to? Yeah. The kid says, I thought about it, and it uh, seems to me that I don't have to. <laughs> I don't have to. Oh, you must. No. Yes, and you have to keep Shabbos, and you have to keep kosher, and you have to you have to put on your tefillin, and you have to go to the mikveh. Yeah. And the kid said, "What do you mean? I have to? I don't have to. I don't need it. I don't. And here, watch. <laughs> I'm not going to do any of that, and I'm going to be fine. So, what are you saying? Invariably, inevitably, the father is going to say." You know, if you don't do it, you're going to suffer. You're going to burn in hell, which only convinces the son that he's right. Because when you have to resort to a threat, it means you have nothing more to say. Who's right? The father or the son? This, this happens in every family. You know, uh, consciously or unconsciously, verbally or non-verbally, this is the conversation between every religious parent and their child. And the child is right. I don't have to. Where did I become responsible? When did I become responsible? You created me. And now it's my job? Nope, that is not Judaism. That's other religions. You must, because if you don't, you'll suffer. And if you do, you will be rewarded. And we are told right from the beginning of Perke Avot, don't do the mitzvah for the sake of a reward. Well, if not for the sake of a reward, then why? Don't do it for the reward because you don't really need the reward. You don't need anything. And yet you should do it because that's what is needed of you. Now you're serving God. You're doing what he needs without thought of a reward. And... <laughs> And if you do that, you will be happy. But if you're taking care of your needs, you will never be happy. So there it is. There's your choice in life. Not to be good or bad. That's a, that's a silly choice. The choice is, do you see yourself as needy or as needed? The rest is commentary. Now, when I say this to people who know a little bit, who have learned a little bit, they go, they go ballistic. No, God does not need. You can't say that. 
God can't have needs. Well, first of all, if you create a universe with a purpose, then you have a need. Unless you are so frivolous. There was this bar, little bar mitzvah boy I was talking to. And I said, you know, God, God needs you to put on tefillin. He says, why do you say he needs? He, he just wants. I said, you think God wants things he doesn't need? Well, you could argue, just as from putting my philosopher hat on, is it maybe maybe as human beings we can't conceive of uh, creating things without a need, but maybe in the heavenly sphere such a thing can be done. Just just putting that out there as devil's advocate. That is possible, but but philosophically that's kind of nihilistic. It's like. Maybe he doesn't need any of this, and maybe we don't really exist, and maybe there is no truth to anything. And by the way, I think a lot of people also would, to add to this retaliation, they might say the first words God utters to the very first Jew, lech lecha, go for yourself, you know, uh, focused on Abraham's, this will be good for you, Abraham, you know, rather than good for God. But who is saying that? God. So if God gets angry at me, that's a huge compliment. If God is giving me good advice, that's another huge compliment. Why does he bother doing this? So people say, he didn't create the world for his need, he created the world for you. Because that's, you know, he's a nice guy and he likes to do favors. He likes to do favors. Looks to me like he needs to do favors if he bothers to create the entire universe just to do you a favor. So maybe his need is to do you a favor, but it's his need. The word need sounds like a weakness because human needs are weaknesses. And the reason it's a weakness for the human being is because it isn't ours. The need to eat is a weakness because it's not my need. If it was my need, it would make me stronger. But no, it makes me weaker because it's not about me. So the need to eat doesn't make me more real, more purposeful, more, more valid. No, it makes me weaker. So when we say God needs, we assume that it's the same kind of need. But the opposite is true. His need is a real need. A real need is not a weakness. It's a purposefulness. <coughs> As with everything else. We have kindness. God's kindness is much more real. We have some strength. God's strength is much more real. It's like my granddaughter was crying because her doll broke. 
the, the arm came out. So I sit down and I say, I can't imagine how much that hurt. Oh, the poor doll. So she starts to laugh and she says, it didn't hurt. I said, what do you mean it didn't hurt? The arm came off. She says, it's not a real arm. I said, how do you know? She says, it's plastic. I said, all right. Right, what was I thinking? A plastic arm is not a real arm. A real arm has to have a bone and skin and muscle. That's a real arm. Actually, is that a real arm? It's just a bone with skin on it. What makes it a real arm? God has a real arm. It's written everywhere in the Torah. God's arm, his right arm. He stretched out his arm. He has a real arm. Real, literal we have something like an arm because we were created his image but our arm is it's puny the same is true with speech does god really speak I mean, he doesn't even have a mouth we speak he doesn't you see how backwards this is god really speaks we babble because <laughs> we're created in his image so we kind of mimic him but he said let there be light and there was light <laughs> i say at home let's have some quiet and nothing happens it doesn't change anything so who really speaks we've got this so backwards it is so twisted it's so I hate to say this, it's so Christian. Everything about God is the real thing. We are the, 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 the metaphor. What is that word? What is that word? Um, anth anthropomorphic, right? People say, when the Torah says God's arm, it's anthropomorphic. It's attributing a human quality to the divine. That is not Jewish. The truth is that when we say God's arm, we are being diopomorphic. We're attributing divine uh, properties to the human being because our arm should not really be called an arm it's theopomorphic our speech should not be called speech so god's need of course he has need and only his need is the real one the valid one my needs they change every half hour <laughs> So you see, we, we've twisted everything so upside down. 
the, the creator of the universe needs nothing. That's it. I, I, I quit. This is not a creator I want to hear about. Yes, the word need is a little uncomfortable. So let's not use the word need. Let's say essential. Is the world essential to him? Or he can do without it? Are we essential to him? Or he really couldn't care less? How do we ever accept and believe that we are not necessary for him, the world is not necessary for him, the whole thing is just, um, but he was bored. It is depressing, it's blasphemous, it's so wrong from every angle. So I was introduced to this minister So I'm introduced to this guy, and his first words were, so do you believe in the Savior? So I said, you know, actually, I'm not, I'm not looking for God to serve me. I want to serve God. The man started to cry. He says, I never even thought of that. But once you hear it, it's like, what were you thinking? That God exists to help you? He's your personal valet? You just got to tip him properly? <laughs> this leads us to marriage. Intimacy. We marry for love. Is that not true? We marry for love. <clears throat> if you marry for love, all you want from your spouse is love. But there's so much more to your spouse. You know, unfortunately, your spouse has an opinion on things. I know it's very annoying. <laughs> your spouse has a personality, has certain sensitivities, moods, habits. Boy, I didn't marry you for this. Just the love, that's all I want. The rest, I don't want to hear it. In other words, I'm not married to you. I am married to love. So as long as there's love, we're together. No love, I really don't need you. If a guy says to a woman, I want to marry you for your money, everybody agrees that it's offensive. Why is it offensive? She has money. <laughs> and he likes money. What's offensive about it? What's offensive is when a man says, I want to marry you for your money, or I love you for your money, he's actually saying, can I just have the money? Do we got to go through this whole thing with just, just the money? No? I have to marry you to get the money? 
okay, I'll marry you. But please stay out of my way. Just give me the money. Isn't the same thing true? People say, I want to get to heaven. I want to be saved. I don't want to go to hell. Who do I talk to? I talk to God. Okay, come to God and I say, can I, can I just go into heaven and not have to go through hell? And God says, well, you know, 613 mitzvahs, or uh, serve me, worship me, love me. Like, oh, I just want to get into heaven. Why is everything so complicated? I actually said the exact, when I was dealing with this whole issue of punishing God and all that kind of stuff, and I was very much in the thick of it, I remember speaking to a rabbi and I said, you know, I just want to know that I'm safe with God. Am I, am I safe? And he actually turned around to me and I'll never forget this line. He said, you don't want safety. I said, yeah, I do. Of course, not. that's exactly what I want. He said, no, you want closeness. Where did you find that rabbi? <laughs> He's a special man. Yes. Absolutely true. And closeness comes with risk, and it might not always be safe. <laughs> yes, closeness comes with very intense emotions. That's what makes it close. So if I marry for love, is it any better than marrying for money? It's exactly the same thing. I'm looking for love. And I think I can get love from you. So I'll marry you for the love. And then, and, and then you switch, bait and switch. All of a sudden, you've got feelings and you've got needs and you've got moods. Come on, this is not part of the deal. So I'm not married to you. I am married to the love, and that's all I want to hear about. The result is people today feel alone in the world like never before. Married people, happily married people, they have no complaints. Marriage is great, everything's good, but I'm alone in the world. How can you be alone when you're married? It's because both of you are married to the love you're not married to each other. You're married to things about each other, but not each other. So your wife is out of town, for example, and you say you miss her. I really miss my wife. Really, what do you miss about her? <laughs> no, I miss her. She's not not home, so I miss her. Well, what do you miss about her? It's not what I miss, it's her. And then she comes home. And the minute she walks in the door, it's like, oh good, now you can take care of the dishes. <laughs> and it becomes about something. We're not supposed to love God for something. We're supposed to love him. And that means if he needs me, I'm here. What will he give me? I don't need that. What is God good for? 
<laughs> he is my God. That's the Jewish slogan. Not God is love. Not God is almighty and powerful. Then power is your God. Love is your God. What did Jews say? Jews say, This is my God, so I will glorify him. Because he's my God. Not because he's big, not because he's smart, not because he's rich, and not because he will give me everything I ask. Same should be true with marriage. Nothing about your spouse can be more important than your spouse. They don't have to earn the privilege of being your spouse. It's not a contest. And in intimacy, if we can go that far, physical intimacy, Physical intimacy is not about something. That's a performance. That's pornography. And it's killing marriages all over the world. Because the intimacy between husband and wife has become a big thing. Are you good at it? Can you be better at it? You want 13 secrets that will make you better at it? That's it. They're each alone in their own world. It's so dehumanizing. Intimacy means it's not about anything. It's just us with no thing coming between us. That's intimate. We've lost it. We've lost it. We've become way too materialistic. And love is materialistic. Love is a thing where you can have or not have. You can have more, you can have less. So maybe it's not a tangible material, but it's still a thing. It's not the person. It's something you can get from the person, you can do with the person. It's not the person. And so you have a performance, and then it's an anxiety, and then you're not so, you know, you got to compete with everybody else who performs better, who's better at it. It's horrible. It's, it's pornography. Like after being intimate, a husband or a wife will ask, how was it? How was it? There was no it, there was just us. Who's the it? And why do you have to ask? Weren't you there? No. You were doing your thing and she was doing her thing. It didn't bring you closer to each other. It separated you for the moment. Now you have to compare. It's horrible. It is horrible. It, it's degrading. And eventually they will hold it against each other. 
It'll turn nasty. So what is real intimacy? Real intimacy means I don't need anything to connect me to you because I'm yours and you are mine. There's no performance. There's no it. There's us to the exclusion of all things. So it sounds like a joke, but it's really not. If you ask your grandmother, what happens in the bedroom? I'm sure your grandmother would say, nothing. He <laughs> said, no, come on, tell me. Nothing. See, that is the right answer. A bedroom does not tolerate anything. A bedroom is meant for him and her. He's not a thing and she's not a thing. You start bringing things into the bedroom and it's not a bedroom anymore and there's no intimacy. So a bedroom should not have a television. A bedroom should not have a desk with a computer. It's a place for him and her, nothing else. In intimacy, there's no lights, there's no music, there's no sound, there's no talking. Because no thing can enhance intimacy, which is a non-thing. Intimacy means us to the exclusion of everything. Because things get in the way. Intimacy means I am all yours, you are all mine. We don't need anything. This is the future. <clears throat> I'm sure that psychology will catch on in the world of mental health. The new message is going to be, no, 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 calm down. You don't really need any of that. You don't need anything. Look around and see who needs you. Because it's much more important to be needed than to be loved. Can I ask at this point, is it a, is it a, a worthy question to ask, but wh why does God need us? You know, okay, so let's accept the premise God needs us. Is it a fair question to ask why or should we just say it doesn't matter why he needs us and what you know what what are we what are we giving him we, do, we don't really need to know why we just need to marvel you're right what can he possibly get from us why would he need us i don't know the more mysterious it is the more i love him for it so I don't really need a rationalization. Uh, couldn't mystery breed doubt? Can a mystery... Could, couldn't mystery breed doubt that God... You know, if I can't understand it, could we not then fall into a sense of doubt? Yes, if we're a little insecure. And the same thing in marriage. If a wife keeps asking her husband, why do you need me? Why do you love me? 
she's having a hard time accepting. That's not healthy. Yes, your husband is a superior human being, and it is a marvel that he needs you. But he needs you. Enjoy it. Don't destroy it. Don't sabotage it. But there is somewhat of an explanation. If you read the description of creation, on the first day God created light, on the second day, the third day, the fourth day, every day he creates stuff. On the sixth day, God creates the first human. And then God says, it is not good for a person to be alone. I'll create him a helpmate. And so he separated them and they became two people. But the question is, why did he have to say it? God wanted to create a man and he wanted to create a woman. So go ahead and create. Why do you have to justify yourself by saying it's not good to be alone? Whatever it is, go, go ahead and create. Do what you want. It's your project, you know. God didn't create the sun and then say, oh, it's not good for the sun to exist alone. I'll create a moon too. Like, he just went ahead and did it. Here is something really profound. When God created the human, he felt like he needed to tell him why. So God says, I created you because it's not good to be alone. And he is referring to himself. It's like, it's like this. God is saying, I am the creator. I am infinite. I am almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing. I am... I am so perfect, I can't believe it myself. But there's just me. Perfect as I am, there's just me. And that's not good. That's why I created you. I need someone, not something. And why do I need someone? So that there's not just me. Because just me is not good. Now, what's not good about being alone? It is horrible. But why? There's something very beautiful and noble about it. Physically, materialistically, it's perfect to be alone. I mean, there's nothing better independent, self-sufficient, I don't need anybody. What a pleasure. But where's the goodness in it? There's nothing good about it. You're capable, you can take care of yourself, you don't need anybody's help. Fine. What's good about that? God didn't say it's not practical to be alone. He said it's not good. God is saying that about himself. I am perfect. I'm all-knowing, almighty. I can do whatever. I know everything. Yeah, so, so what? Where's the goodness? To have goodness, there's got to be another. Can't just be you. Even if you're perfect. Especially when you're perfect. 
You see, if a man was really perfect and he got married, he wouldn't need anything from his wife because he's perfect. All he needs is for her to be in his life so that it's not just him. Now he really needs her, not something from her. Isn't that amazing? So here's, here's the sum. If I'm perfect, I think I'm perfect, or I don't care to be perfect. I'm content the way I am. And yet I get married to you. And for some reason, you're not available to me. What am I missing? If we don't respond to God, is he less perfect? No, he's still perfect. He, he doesn't need anything from you because he has everything. But if you're not there while he's keeping Shabbos, then he is alone in his Shabbos. And it's not good to be alone. So what's missing at his Shabbos table? You're missing. Not your religiosity. You. You're not there. And that hurts. And if it hurts him, then it hurts infinitely. Because his hurt is the real hurt. Ours is just a metaphor. And the same thing with marriage. Same thing with children. If your children are not on the same page with you, it's not a religious issue. And don't make it a religious issue. It's the child. So the child who does not join the family, doesn't sit at the Shabbos table, is no less needed, <coughs> no less essential to the family. In fact, in some way he's more needed because he's missed. Now we've got a world that makes sense, a life that's worth living. That's Judaism. And can we go back to the original discussion about re uh, relating to punishment and to the concept of punishment when, when, when bad things come our way in life? With all this in mind, how, how does this reframe things? There is reward and there is punishment. If you live healthy, you're healthy. If you don't live healthy, you won't be healthy. There are consequences. That's true. But is that why you're going to live healthy? Because you don't want to have health problems? That's your life? It's senseless. You want to be healthy so that you can live life. Being healthy is not life. So people who are crazy about their health, they have no life. Yeah. Which means they have no meaningful relationships. That's life. So God is very healthy. But it's not good to be alone. 
That's why the Mishnah says, there is reward and there is punishment. But why would you even bother thinking about that when you can be serving God? The reward and the punishment are ways of reminding us to serve God. But to live your life for the reward or to avoid punishment, that's not even living. And what about someone trying their best, doing their best, but feeling like things aren't going the way they might have wanted? In most cases, in the vast majority of cases, what we think went wrong in our lives was not wrong at all. We just don't see things clearly. So the, the real trick is to reassess, because we do that all the time. You know, as a child, we felt it was the biggest disaster, the worst day of my life, when my mother said we can't go to the park. A couple of days later, I kind of got over it. Turns out that the park was crowded, and an hour later it started to rain. It was actually a good thing we didn't go to the park. So looking back at things, we realized that we were overreacting. It was not a bad thing. It certainly wasn't a tragic thing. So it's all a matter of perspective. There are times when God is mysterious and we don't understand why this would happen. So what else is new? Like somebody said, I don't understand why God does what he does. And the rabbi said to them, uh, let's go to the shorter list. What do you understand? <laughs> how, much of, how much of life do we understand? Why are you surprised that you don't understand God? You don't, you don't understand your mother. You don't understand your children. You never understood your teacher. So let's not get so bent out of shape every time things don't happen the way we predicted. Look, weathermen, they don't get, they don't get upset. <laughs> They're wrong all the time. They expected rain. The rain didn't come. They expected snow, a storm. They warned you, don't go out. It's going to be, uh, it was not, it was not. So that they quit and not come back to work the next day. <laughs> Fine, but do they readjust? Do, do they do, you know, do we do what the Talmud suggests in one place where it says when you face bad circumstances, you should, re, you should examine your actions and, you know, try to figure out what's going on? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. If you think something bad happened, rethink, re-examine. And don't go with the punishment thing. You got to really be careful with that. Like the people who say that the Holocaust was a punishment for our sins, that, that is so wicked and senseless. There is no sin punishable by Holocaust. There's no such sin. So that's a cheap shot. You're trying to justify God by blaming the victim? I think God hates that. Don't blame the victim. Particularly in our generation. To suggest that God is angry, even with that little girl, 
God is angry at us because we uh, fail to do mitzvahs or because we violate. You, 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 you got to be out of your mind. It's been 3,000 years since we heard from God. You know, people, something. When was the first time God spoke to an entire nation? Oh, at Mount Sinai. When is the last time God spoke to a nation? Uh, at Mount Sinai. It was the first and last time God spoke to us. That was 3,300 years ago. 2,000 of those years were absolutely miserable, indescribably difficult, painful, crazy, crazy years. And he doesn't talk to us. Now you're going to come and tell me that this year when you did something you were not supposed to do, God is angry at you and will punish you for it? What kind of God are you talking about? Where is the justice? Where is the sense? If a Jew today does a single mitzvah or even knows that there is a mitzvah, he's already bigger than life. He's a hero. The Jew who tells his children, we are Jewish, is a hero. Why? Why does he remember being Jewish and why is it important to him? I'm sure it, 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 it reduces God to tears to see the devotion of the Jews today. How could he possibly be angry at us? But it's really, I mean, talk about giving God a bad name. On the contrary, everything Jewish a Jew does today is is huge. Despite everything, after all the, it's amazing. Jews are absolutely amazing. It's not possible that God is angry at any Jew today. Because whatever we do wrong, who's to blame? You expect Jews to be perfect after what you put us through? No, he doesn't expect that. In fact, he's quite pleasantly surprised at how Jewish we are. So to even go there, to even talk about reward and punishment, we're way beyond that. We've, we've graduated way beyond that. We are so united with God that with reward, without reward, punishment, no punishment, it's not going to change anything. We are his and he is ours. Let me end with this. I was traveling and I wanted to bring home a souvenir. So I go into the souvenir shop, which is mm, nothing, nothing impressive. But I found this embroidered pillow. On the one side, uh, the, the words stitched into the pillow said, 
I'm smiling because you're my sister. On the other side, it said, and I'm laughing because there's nothing you can do about it. You're stuck with me. See, the same thing is true. So I, I bought it for my sister. But the same thing is true with God. You would think that we're discouraged. You would think we quit. We don't want to be Jewish. We don't care about it anymore. In our relationship with God, on our tefillin bag, or on the Torah covers, we should embroider the words, I'm smiling because I am your people. I am yours. And on the other side, it should say, and I am laughing because there's nothing you can do about it. We are not giving up on you. God is angry at us. Just simple decency dictates that he cannot, can't be angry at us. Not after what he put us through. Where's the justice? No, he is extremely proud of us. He is even maybe surprised at how good we turned out because it's superhuman. We, superhuman. And that's, you know, with all due um, humility, we are what we are. And the world knows it. Just we're too humble to recognize it. So we should celebrate being Jewish. God celebrates our Jewishness. It, it justifies all of creation, makes it all worthwhile. So if you have five minutes, do something for him. Put on tefillin. Give a little charity. Say a blessing. Notice the mezuzah on your door, just for him. It is absolutely true. Human beings need to be needed more than they need to be loved. Being quarantined has made us realize this. We don't need things. We've done without things for a year now. We didn't travel, we didn't go for entertainment, we didn't have sports events, we didn't go to work, we didn't go to school. We don't need any of those things. But like the rabbi said to you, the only thing we need is closeness. I want to be there for him. And he makes it easy. 613 opportunities, take your pick. Um, so I, I think what you're saying is cr will create such an important paradigm shift for people that experience their Jewish practice and concepts of uh, spirituality and connection to God. And I have to say that, you know, this whole question of d does God need us? Do we, you know, do, do, is, does God have no needs? What you're telling me and, about, and from what I understand 
about how basic human relationships work, it just sounds totally intuitive to me. You know, and I, I would imagine that the world God creates, he'll make it so that we can intuit from the way we, we experience relationships that such principles can apply with him. And when you look at it that way, life and world history and what we're doing in our engagement of mitzvot, it becomes a love story, basically. And love stories can be full of bumps and pains and, and, and highs and lows, but I just think this is such a, it, it, it becomes, it's so beautiful to look at it this way. And it, it pains me that many people, you know, including myself, <laughs> haven't always been taught to experience Judaism in this light. And it can, if it's not, if it's all about the punishing, fiery uh, God, uh, it, it really pushes people away. And, it, and, and more than that, can, can, can be very destructive. So what is it about Gehenna? What is hell? From a Jewish perspective, not from Dante's Inferno. So to, to understand it properly, very briefly, the expression going to hell is incorrect. First of all, hell is not a place. It's not a location. It's a condition. You don't go there. You go through Gehenna. You go through that experience. You don't go there and sit there. It's not a place, not a habitat. You go through it. And what are you going through? The regrets. How many regrets does a person have at the end of life? Many. If I could only do it over again, you know? So the regrets are embarrassing. So what does it mean to burn in hell? You're talking about the soul, not about the body. The body is not burning. And how do you burn a soul? Well, the only way a soul burns is with shame. Because the soul is, is, is far more sensitive than a body. Exquisitely sensitive. So the embarrassment is painful. How many, how, how much embarrassment do we have? <clears throat> well, if we went down the anatomy, start with your head. What did you do in your mind that you're regretting? What, what did you do with your eyes that you regret? What did you do with your mouth that you regret? Every part of the body, there are some regrets. Could have done better, shouldn't have done what I did, whatever. That's hell. And you don't go there, you go through it. And who goes through it? Everybody. Except those weird creatures who have absolutely no conscience. They don't go to hell. They're not even worthy of that. So hell means adjusting from the life of a body to a life without a body. 
how long does that adjustment take? Well, it depends on how deeply com committed you were to your body. If you weren't really, really hung up on your body, then the adjustment is easier. The more gluttonous, the more, um, the more materialistic, the harder it is to let go. So you're embarrassed. But the maximum time in, in hell is 12 months. That's why we say Kaddish for 11 months. Because not everybody needs the maximum 12 months. Then again, they might. <laughs> so we do it 11 months. But some people, an hour, an hour of regret and they're ready for heaven. So the way to understand hell from a Jewish perspective is getting to heaven is hell. <laughs> but we're going to heaven. You're not going to hell. You just got to go through hell to get there. So it's, again, a compliment to the soul. It shows that we have a conscience. We know right from wrong. We really meant to do better. We wish we could do better. Regret is a sign of decency, of sensitivity. So as the soul becomes pure soul without a body, there, there's a lot to unlearn and a lot to forget and erase. That's how. But we're going to heaven. You're not going to hell. You got to deserve to go to hell. Like somebody says, is Hitler in hell? God forbid. <laughs> if he came to hell, everybody else would leave. <laughs> like there goes the neighborhood, you know. <laughs> no, he's not in hell. Hell means to clean up and salvage what's good. There wasn't enough good in him to clean up or salvage. So where is he? Who says he is? Some people don't have eternity. They're just not anymore. Anyway, the point of it is this. Even if God sends you through hell, you should take it as a compliment. You matter enough to him, even after you sinned, that he wants to clean you up and have you in heaven. And heaven is only temporary. Eventually, every soul comes back to its body. Because being retired is not a Jewish concept. And heaven is a retirement home. We would much rather be here on earth serving God. So the souls will all come back to earth, come back to their bodies, and go back to serving God. That's the Jewish view. Wow. 
Rabbi, thank you so much. Uh, honestly, uh, I feel like we could continue to speak about this and go on for hours and hours. I have no doubt that there's so much more that we could cover. Um, I would love to uh, ask if you would consider doing this again at some point on, on the channel. Um, yeah, because I, I, I feel like there's just so much more that we want to cover. I have no doubt our viewers are going to take a lot from this. Um, and so just a massive thank you to you for, for your time. Uh, for your insight, your wisdom, um, and we look forward to the next one. Thank you for the opportunity. I think you might be able to tell that I enjoy this. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the, the feeling is mutual. Thank you so much.